join me in your Bibles in the book of Ruth, if you would, please. The book of Ruth. This morning, our goal is to, to uh, capture the closing of the book of Ruth. Uh, this is one of the more unique clothing, closings in, in the Word of God to a book. Uh, matter of fact, there are, there's much debate, a scholarly debate over what the closing means. As it, um, we've gone through the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and we've seen the redemptive process that takes place when an individual goes from being a, a, a sinner, a Moabite, <clears throat> to being a, a believer, a follower of Christ, one who has been redeemed and justified and saved. And so at the, end of the, at the end of the book, it closes out with a genealogy. And again, there's much conversation about what this genealogy looks uh, means, why it's there. And our purposes this morning will be to just unfold, really uh, not even to focus in really on the details of the um, genealogy as much as unfold why it's there. And, and, and that will kind of be our, our focus this morning. Um, so if, you, if you're there with me, we're going to read here in just a few moments. But I, I want you to think, uh, the title of this morning's message is The Bigger Picture of Redemption. And I want you to think, to begin to think this morning about the bigger picture. There's always more to be seen. There's always more to be discovered. There's always more to be considered than what initially meets the eye. As I was reading this week, I came across a, a story about the uh, cartoon movie Ants. And maybe you've not seen the movie, but maybe a little bit of an explanation of it will make sense to you. Uh, the movie follows this small uh, ant throughout his life as he uh, works very hard and is on the quest to win the love of this prince's ant. And as the movie goes on, at the very end of the movie, as it's followed this, the story of this small little ant and his life, at the very end of the movie, it, it, the, the cameras pan out. And, and as they pan out, we come, we come to know that the entire event <clears throat> is taking place in Central Park in New York City. And then you see all the, the uh, obviously the people and the activity amongst the people. And the purpose of it is, is that now you can take the story of the ant that you've just watched an entire movie of, and you can now see um, how that relates to, to the story of man. And you're meant to kind of make that connection. You're meant to, to see that there's a, there's a bigger picture behind the story of the ant, and that is, is, to, is to kind of make the connection between the ant and, and, and mankind. And life is often like this. And when you zoom in to life and you start to get really, really focused on the details, the, the little things, the small things, oftentimes what happens is, is you lose sight of the big picture, don't you? And, and, and little details and problems and, and, and difficulties and things like that, they become kind of the, the central focus and the big picture gets lost in the, in the, in the clouds, if you will. On, on the other hand, when you zoom out of the picture of life, you often... Uh, you often see the big picture, but you lose sight of some of the details, don't you? Some of the problems and difficulties that you might face in life become more peripheral because you have a, a bigger perspective on what life is all about. 
And for a Christian, this ought to be how we live our lives. We ought not to live as much focused in on the little details that take place in life, but, but really to, to, uh, to zoom out a little bit and to get a more of a heavenly perspective, uh, a divine perspective, a perspective that um, we might say that the Lord might have as He looks down from heaven and He sees everything taking place. He doesn't, it doesn't concern Him. He doesn't worry about it. He's not... Um, wringing his hands up in heaven because of, of the things that we're going through right now. He has a perfect plan for every situation and every circumstance, and he's able to see things in light of that. And as a Christian, we have that benefit because we have the Word of God, and so therefore we have this opportunity to rise above our circumstances. And I mean, maybe a little bit like Peter walking on the water, you got all the storms of life going on, but yet there was something about Peter's ability to walk on the water as long as he kept his eyes on Christ, right? As long as he kept focused on the, the most important and the most significant, he was able to walk on the, um, on the troubles of life. And then when he started getting his eyes focused on the troubles of life, he began to sink. And then he was able to walk on the water again, but this time not by keeping his eyes on Jesus, but by holding Jesus' hand. It's almost like you go from this faith relationship where Peter can see the Lord and therefore in his strength he can walk on the water. But there are times that we don't keep our eyes on the Lord and we begin to sink and the Lord is no longer just in our vision, but now he's, now he's walking beside us and he's the one who is holding us up. I think the story of the footprints in the sand is a good example of that. When you see certain times in your life where there's just one set of footprints, it's when the Lord is carrying us through life. And there are other times that there are two sets, and, and in that point in time, we're walking with the Lord, walking beside the Lord. So life is like this. You can either live life focused in on the details, zoomed in to every little piece, or you can have a more of, a, of a, uh, uh, a heavenly perspective, right? And when we look at a little ant, and we watch that little ant, and maybe you've done some, some studies of ants, and you kind of see, wow, this and that, and you can study that. But imagine God looking down on earth and seeing us. It's, a, it's maybe not even a similar picture because of, of how much greater He is than we are is more so than we are than ants are. Let me give you another illustration of it. Recently, uh, a matter of fact, this week there was a, there was a car pileup in, in, in Dallas, Texas. Maybe you saw it on the news. And this car pileup uh, involved over 100 cars. And it's interesting because the pictures of the accidents, the pictures of the accident told two different stories. On one hand, you had drivers that were involved in the accident that were taking pictures of the accident, and they had a, a very narrow view based upon the things just going around them and what they could see. On the other hand, you had, a, you had helicopter pictures in which they were up in the sky and they could see the whole of the picture. Now, some people might be sitting in the car taking pictures thinking, oh, this is just five cars in this accident. But from a, from a, a, a higher view, what they could see is that there, were there was a hundred plus cars involved in this accident. And what happened by zooming out is you were able to get a picture, a bigger picture, a more... A more a separated picture of what really is happening. And again, this is how life is. The story of life is often bigger than what we can see, what we can hear, and what we can touch. 
And while the danger is, is that we find ourselves locked into those things, we miss out on what is the bigger picture. The Bible is the same. <clears throat> the Bible has what's called levels of interpretation. These levels of interpretation, as you read God's Word, you're going to see three levels of interpretation, three things taking place that you have to, um, as you study it, you'll be able to, to, to understand the, the bigger picture of what's taking place and the narrow picture. The, the first level is that which is literal and immediate. It's what you can see. And we'll, we'll look at it from Ruth's perspective here in a few minutes. It's the immediate. It's what you can see, touch, and feel. When we read stories in the Bible, we see actual narratives taking place. We see within those narratives, we see truth. We see people getting saved. We see people, we see wars. We see conflict. We see deliverance. We see all of these things taking place. And these things are all real. They're, they're, they're literal, actual events that are happening that the Lord is explaining to us so that we can understand these events at a very zoomed-in level. We get the, the details down. But level two is more of a zoomed-out level. It's, it's known as um, the moral level or the futuristic level. And we zoom out a little bit and we, got, we start to see a little bit of a bigger picture that there's maybe more to this than just meets the eye. There's maybe more to this than what I'm actually um, seeing in the details. If I take a, 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 a zoomed outlook, I can see more to it. And then the third level is the, is the spiritual level or the eternal level. This is where you zoom out and you see the spiritual truths that are being uh, taught to us in the text. I bring all of that up because I'm going to try this morning to show you in the book of Ruth these three levels. Uh, Ruth, I think, is probably one of the best books of the Bible to in understanding these three things taking place all at the same time, especially when you get to the end of it, which is this genealogy of David and of Boaz. So the book of Ruth is a perfect example of this interpretive style, while when it closing with this um, genealogy. So let's read it together if you want to follow along with me. The Bible says in verse number 18, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So in, in this genealogy, we're going to see the, the connection between the events that take place in the book of Ruth and what their, what their bigger picture is, what their bigger purpose is, what's, what is God working out in this scenario. So let's look first of all at level one, the literal and the, and the immediate in the book of Ruth. We're just going to uh, uh, run through it here very quickly. The book of Ruth is the story of an individual's redemption. It's very personal. It's very intimate. Ruth is one who is lost. She's without hope. She's without help. She's without direction. She's without purpose. In, in every way, shape, or form, Ruth is a, is a very personal description of a lost person, somebody who does not have a relationship with Christ. 
So the book of Ruth in a, in a, in a very uh, first level way is a story of individualistic redemption. Boaz in the book of Ruth is seen as the redeemer. In the book of Ruth, you have beginning with Elimelech's family leaving Bethlehem, which was known as the house of bread. It's known in scripture as the, um, it's the place of God's blessing. David, David, David's uh, uh, place, it's called, the, it's the place where Christ is born. Uh, it, all of these things are true about Bethlehem. It's, it's a very significant place in God's perspective. They leave Bethlehem because there's trouble there. Let me say this to you. That's something that we often do, isn't it? We often leave the place that we're supposed to be because we face troubles and difficulties. The Lord never promised that we weren't going to face troubles and difficulties. The Bible says that those who are going to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. You're going to face troubles and difficulties. And, but, yet, but yet Elimelech's family, they, they see this challenge of famine as a, uh, an opportunity or perhaps a call to leave, and they move to Moab. The name Moab means of his father, and Moab's father was none other than Lot himself based upon an ancestral relationship with his daughter. Moab is a place known for horrible uh, idolatry and fornication and adultery. You don't get as bad a sinner as you get those who are in Moab, but yet here Elimelech is, a, a, a Jewish man, a significant man, and he leaves the place of God's blessing because there's trials there, there's difficulties there, there's heartaches there, and he runs to a place of like Sodom and Gomorrah, just like Lot did. He goes to a place, the Bible says, because it's a well-watered plain. It seems better. There's more, there's more stuff there for us. Whatever might be the reasoning behind it, uh, Elimelech takes his family. He doesn't just go there himself, but he takes his family there with him to a place of idolatry and, and fornication and adultery, a place of uncleanness. He takes his family there. He's, this is a picture of, of Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every man to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. This is the zoomed-in picture. This is what's happening here. As a result of Elimelech taking his family to Moab, Elimelech and both of his sons die. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is, is death. They suffer the consequences of all we like sheep have gone astray. And, and, and listen to me, everybody suffers the consequences of all we like sheep have gone astray. If there's one universal law that applies to every individual that will ever walk upon the face of this, this earth is that there is appointed unto men once to die. Death is a universal reality. It's a universal truth. There isn't a soul that will avoid it. We will all die as a, as a consequence of sins. And Elimelech is an example of that. And his two sons, they walk away from the Lord and they ultimately end up facing the consequence of their actions. And in doing so, they leave Ruth, Naomi, and, and Orpah, which we didn't talk a lot about, but Orpah was another daughter-in-law. They end up leaving these three women as widows without any hope in a very, very wicked land, in a, in a land of, of fornication, in a land where three women who are alone are a target. This is a horrible situation for them. 
You talk about hopelessness being in Moab. Take hopelessness being in Moab and add, and add having all of your husbands and men die to the picture. This is, this, is, this is hopelessness to an extreme. But God is gracious, isn't he? God sends a blessing to Bethlehem, and God makes sure that Naomi knows about the blessings in Bethlehem. And Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem because now God is blessing it again. And she takes Ruth and Orpah back with her. The Bible teaches that they go back. They all start on the journey to go back, but Orpah decides to stay. And Orpah decides, because of the, the difficulty of the journey to get to the place of God's blessing, she decides that the road is too hard. I'll stay here. I'll remarry a Moabite, and I will worship the Moabite gods again. This is the picture of somebody who gets on the road of Christianity, who has a sign of Christianity, who shows symbols of life, but never is a follower of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, it can happen for people for years and years and years of their life when they see the gospel as this, ease, as this health, wealth, and ease gospel that is not the biblical gospel at all, but they see the gospel as this means to making their life better. Listen to me, folks. The gospel is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and then you can be my disciple. The gospel is, is the rewards and the blessings and all of those things are eternal. They're in heaven. They're when you reach Bethlehem. They're when you reach the promised land. They're not in the wilderness. And we're in the wilderness right now. Heaven is our promised land. The Lord doesn't, doesn't forsake Naomi. He makes sure that she knows of this blessing. But Orpah, she starts this journey. She gets... She gets on the road with them and it starts getting hard and difficult. And she says, nah, I'm not going to go. We read of this in Matthew 13 with the soils. The Bible says that the soil, the seed falls on the soil of the rocky ground. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And meaning, and meaning, meaning that they respond to the gospel because it's, it's, it's good for them or whatever might be the case. But immediately it says, it says, Yet because it has no root in itself, it endures for a while. But when tribulations and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This is when the word of God gets hard. It gets difficult. It calls out your sin. It calls out your, your, in, your, your, your unrighteousnesses. It calls out the world's unrighteousnesses. It calls out everything evil about us, our unworthiness. The word of God does that. The word of God is meant to do that so that we will fall on our faces before the only one who is worthy, and that is Christ, who can bring redemption. May I submit to you folks that those who see the gospel and see Christ as just a means to make your life better, when your life gets difficult and your life gets hard, you will forsake Him. When you realize that He is the eternal Son of God who came to give you eternal salvation, and this life is going to be difficult and challenging, but the next life is going to be an extraordinary blessing. Ruth, Orpah says, I'm not going to go. It's too hard. It's too challenging. Ruth, on the other hand, she makes, a, at the end of chapter number one, you guys remember it, she makes this bold, bold proclamation to Naomi. She says, I will not forsake you. Even if it comes to my death, Naomi, I will not forsake you. Who was Naomi to Ruth? Naomi to Ruth was a Christian woman, a godly woman, one that she could follow and respect 
And may I submit to you this morning that that is who we ought to be as Christians, as someone that someone can look to us and say, I believe that the path that you're going in is the right path and I'm going to follow you. Remember this, Ruth is not even a believer at the point that she makes this decision. She just sees something in Naomi that is real. And she says, I'm following that no matter what. She determines to go with Naomi and she makes it to Bethlehem. And God designs, you guys know the rest of the story, God designs for Ruth to meet Boaz. She, I mean, the, the terminology in the book is like all this stuff is happening by design. It's not accidental. Things are happening because God has orchestrated them and organized them to happen. Ruth and Boaz meet by design. Boaz proves himself to be worthy trustworthy and loyal to Ruth by design. Boaz proves himself to be the rightful redeemer by design. Boaz and, Mary, Boaz and Ruth get married, providing for Ruth provision, protection, care, a new identity, a new significance, and a new purpose. That Ruth now, because she is in Boaz, because she is a part of his family, she finds that everything is new for her. This is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's true, isn't it? Everything is different. She meets Boaz and you see this plan unfolding as God up in heaven tells us the story of redemption, individual redemption. This one single woman out of all has been chosen to carry out some amazing things for God. The Bible tells us in, in, as we go through chapter number 3 that they have a baby. The baby's name is Obed. Obed just simply means worshiper. The product of, the product of Ruth and Boaz's relationship, the, prop, the product of, of Ruth's, of Ruth's um, relationship with, with Boaz is a fruitful product. In other words, she becomes fruitful for the kingdom. She becomes a producer in the kingdom. Before, she was probably unable to have children. Now she's able to because God has opened up her womb. Now she is fruitful for God. Obed becomes the father of Jesse, which leads us to level two. Level two is the moral or the future piece of this story. We're going to look at the story from, we're going to zoom out a little bit. Maybe we're in the helicopter right now. We're going to look a little bit more zoomed out. This, this story, when you zoom out a little bit, becomes no more about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, but now the story becomes completely about David. The entire of this story becomes a, a, a kingdom story. It's a story, about a, it's a story about a place and a people who, according to the last verse of um, uh, Judges, a people who had no king and therefore they did what was right in their own eyes. This story becomes completely a, a nationalistic story. It's a story of corporate redemption. The story becomes completely about Israel being redeemed from their, study the book of Judges, they're going to be completely redeemed because they were just like Ruth. They were just like Ruth. You say, what do you mean, Pastor John? They were Moabite in action. Not Moabite in, in, in genealogies, but they were Moabite in action. 
In other words, they were selfish. They were adulterous. They were fornicating. Everything that a Moabite was known for, the Jews were. It becomes a, a little bit of a bigger picture. It's no longer just about Ruth, but now it becomes about all of the people of Israel, all of the Jewish people. They're sinners. They're lost. They need a redeemer. They need a king. They need a deliverer. They need someone to lead them and guide them. They need this. And, and that, that is what this story becomes about when you take into context the very last verse. It's all about David. This story becomes all about David. Whether you're reading the last verse in Judges or you're reading the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, what you see about Ruth is Ruth is a link that connects a, a leaderless people who are doing what's right in their own eyes to a righteous people who are led by David the king. And Ruth is a means to making this end possible. Ruth is a link in the chain, and so is Boaz. This is about corporate redemption. The problem is they're without a leader, and they're doing what's right in their own eyes. The solution is they need a leader. They need a king, someone to lead them and unite them as a people. The solution is King David. When you study the genealogies, you go back to Genesis chapter number 49. The Bible says that the scepter, the kingdom, would not depart out of Judah. In other words, that the Judah would be the line through which all of the leaders of Israel would come. So in other words, this, this, this um, Boaz and, and uh, um, Obed had to come out of the line of Judah. The reason why he starts with Perez in this genealogy is because Perez is Judah's son. What is he saying? He's saying that David is the rightful king because he falls into the genealogical line of Judah. If David did not fall in that line, he would not be a rightful and worthy king. He has to be in the line of Judah. Therefore, he says about this story, listen, the story is about David and David falls into the line of Judah. Let's go back to Genesis 49 and let's see that. It's interesting because Judah has Perez in, by his own daughter-in-law. Another really, really uh, hor horrible story in the Scriptures that God took and made, he took, the, he took the coal and made a diamond out of it. I tell you something, folks, that's the gospel. That's what the Lord is teaching us in this text. It's the gospel. You read it in Genesis 38 if you have time to read it in your own. Tamar, his daughter-in-law, her husband dies. You guys know the story. He doesn't give his next son. He doesn't tell him to take, to take uh, Tamar as his wife, which would have been what the Leverett Law would have demanded. And so Tamar plays the harlot. And she gets Judah to sleep with her, and they have an offspring, and it's, it's Perez. It's horrible. I mean, we don't even read about those kind of stories today, do we? He's making something out of it. David's genealogies point us to Perez, which point us to Judah. So he's working out this bigger picture. 
He's working out a kingdom picture. He's credentialing David for the kingdom. One of the things that you'll notice in the book of Ruth is that there are there is the use of proper names everywhere. The only proper name that's not used in Ruth is Mr. So-and-so. You guys all remember Mr. So-and-so, right? Why is Mr. So-and-so's name not mentioned, but everybody else's name is mentioned over and over again? The reason is, is because the story is about David, and Mr. So-and-so doesn't fit into the story of David. He doesn't matter to the story of David. But everybody else, let's make sure we know their name. Let's make sure we know their relationship together, how they're related and how they're connected. Let's make sure we know all of those things. Why? Because at the end of the day, people are going to question David's right to be king. And if we don't have the genealogies laid out right, correctly, we don't have all of these details, this little four-chapter book about a a man and a a woman and a mother-in-law, if we don't have that piece laid out in detail, we're going to have problems when David makes a mistake as king. People are going to say, hey, he's not the rightful king anyway. He is the rightful king, and we know that because God connected the dots for us, didn't he? God connected the dots for us. The picture is bigger than we think. While the, de- while the details of Ruth, Ruth may seem unnecessary, in light of the bigger picture, they become more than necessary. The details were necessary to make the bigger picture possible. The reality of it is, is the redemption of Ruth had a far bigger purpose than just the redemption of Ruth. And we'll look at that in a moment. Level three, this is the spiritual and eternal understanding of the book of Ruth. What you will see if you go to Matthew chapter number one is you'll see almost the exact same genealogies mentioned in the line of Christ. Here you have this genealogy here to put us, point us to David so that we'll know that David is king, but we also are promised all throughout Scripture that one day there will be a king that will not be David, but one day there will be an eternal king who will sit on the throne of David who will come through the genealogical lines of David. He is the Messiah, right? He is the one who will save. Jesus Christ is the one who will ultimately bring redemption. There's no one in here this morning that's looking to David for redemption. There's nobody in here this morning that's looking to Boaz for redemption. But what we do know is that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. Jesus Christ is capable of saving souls. Jesus Christ is capable of taking a Ruth and making her into the line of Christ. He is capable of taking a Tamar and putting her into the line of Christ. He is capable of taking a um, uh, Rahab and putting her into the line of Christ. He is capable of doing these things. Listen to me, folks. It's about us recognizing our unworthiness, acknowledging it in repentance, and embracing what Christ has for us. Because He has amazing things for those who surrender their will and accept His will. Jesus isn't in the business of letting you, Jesus isn't in the business of joining your program. He's in the business of inviting you into his. Jesus isn't in the business of making your life better. He's in the business of bringing you into his life. And if you understand the life of Christ and you know that you've been called to live out the life of Christ, you will know that it will be full of difficulty. And it will conclude with blessing. Not one of us in here would say that the greatest accomplishment of, not one of us would argue this morning that the greatest accomplishment of Christ was his death on the cross. 
Jesus Christ, this is a story, this third level is a story of worldwide redemption. No longer is it about Ruth, no longer is it about the Jews, but now it is about everyone. It's about you and me. We are a product of this story, this small little story of this small Moabite woman, insignificant. We are a product of that. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the ultimate redeemer, the only and ultimate redeemer. Remember this, Boaz and David, Boaz and David are not previous redeemers to Jesus. Okay? If you're taking notes, write that down. Boaz and David are not previous redeemers to Jesus. Boaz and David are typological redeemers to Jesus. Boaz and David are not redeemers. They're types of the Redeemer. They're meant to paint us a picture of the one who truly brings redemption. You see, Ruth didn't get saved because of Boaz. Ruth got saved because of Jesus. The Jews don't get saved because of David. The Jews get saved because of Jesus. And we don't get saved because of either one of these men or any preacher or pastor or priest or good work or good deed. We don't get saved because of any of these things, folks. If you are saved this morning, it is because of Jesus. He is the one who saves. He alone is the Redeemer. This is a heavenly view of what's taking place. Man, if we could just see that our life's there's more to our life than just the, the mundane details that we focus on every day and we let them get to us. There's this, there's this thousand-foot view of our life. And when you start to get a thousand-foot view of your life, it's no longer a selfish life. It becomes a selfless life. You're now living for others. Boaz and David aren't redeemers. Jesus is the only redeemer. And Boaz and David are meant to point us to Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why the genealogies in Matthew are exactly the same as in Ruth, is that we know at the end of the story, with the bigger picture in mind, we know that Jesus Christ is truly the... Jesus Christ is the hero in Ruth, isn't he? If you just read Ruth at the basic level, would you say that, would you say that Jesus Christ is the, is the hero in Ruth? Listen to me, Jesus is the hero in Ruth. Jesus is the hero when David faces Goliath. Jesus is the hero in the fiery furnace. Jesus is the hero in the lion's den. Jesus is the hero in every situation and every circumstance in life if you can get a view that's beyond the, mon- the, the zoomed-in level. I'm not saying the zoomed-in level is not important, but we've got to get a zoomed-out picture as well. We've got to see what's going on from God's perspective, not just from our perspective and our point of of view. The redemption isn't only for Ruth and Naomi. The redemption is for the Jews. The redemption is not only for the Jews, but the redemption is for everybody, for everyone in the world who will repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the... For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's not a Jew thing. It's not a Gentile thing. It's an everybody thing. If you will place your faith in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, the Bible says that you will be saved. And we're called by Matthew 28 to go and to preach the gospel to everyone, not to any select 
group of people. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I want to give you three biblical truths in closing that I want you to consider this morning from, from these three levels. Number one, remember this. Redemption is individualistic. Redemption is individualistic. In other words, there's never a soul that is saved that wasn't saved personally by Jesus Christ. Every soul, zooming down to the zoomed-in level, Ruth was a very significant person in God's economy of purchasing of, of, of salvation and redemption and gaining a person, placing a person in his chain so that he could carry out his long-term plans. Every soul that is saved will be saved as an individual. Listen to me this morning. If your goal is that you want to be saved because your mom and dad were saved, because your grandparents were saved, because you go to a religious group that talks about salvation, you don't understand that salvation is personal. Salvation is something that you and the Lord come to, come to terms with. It's between you and God and you and God alone. Your parents can't save you. Your parents can't... can't um, your, your parents can't be salvation for you. It's between you and God, just like it was between Ruth and God. It's between you and God. It's personal. The Bible says in John 10 and verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opened. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by name. And he says later, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them everlasting life. Just one chapter later, in John chapter number 11, Jesus Christ walks up to the tomb of a dead man and He says, Lazarus, come forth. Do you know what He's telling us in that text of Scripture? He's telling us simply this, I know my sheep by name. He's giving us an illustration of what He taught us in John chapter number 10. Every soul that is saved is saved as an individual, and every soul that is saved is saved deliberately, and it's never an accident. It's never an accident. If you are saved this morning, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, it was a deliberate act of God. It's no different than all of the story of Ruth was no accident. It was every piece and every step was meticulously planned out by God. If you're one of His children this morning, your salvation is not an accident. It is deliberately planned out by God and His marvelous grace and love. Ephesians 1 is a great place to look. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Redemption is individualistic. Number two, individual redemption has a bigger purpose than the individual nature of it. Individual redemption has a bigger picture than the individual nature of it. In other words, God is saving you as a display of His goodness and His value, not as a display of your goodness and your value. The salvation of an individual is never based upon them, always based upon Him. God is displaying something, showing something about Himself, and that is the reason why He saves mankind. 
The reality of it is if God had zero desire to show himself merciful and gracious, zero of humanity would be saved. But because God in heaven desires to display his mercy and his grace, he has saved a people for himself. And this is a display of his grace, his glory, and his goodness. Anyone who views the gospel as something of selfish nature likely does not understand the gospel. You say that again. Anyone who views the gospel as something that is selfish likely does not understand the gospel. God brings a people for him to himself. He brings them to himself for his glory. He brings them to himself as a display of his grace and mercy. He brings them to himself so that they can represent him and witness of him and his kingdom in a lost and dying world. That is why Jesus saves. And it's totally for his glory. The picture is bigger. If you think about Ruth, it's like, oh, great, Ruth got saved. I think that is a great part of the story, isn't it? But then the bigger picture is, is Israel got saved. And the bigger picture is that people got saved all over the world, that you got saved. You ever think that the Lord might have saved you to put you into a line of people that he could save others and others and others and others? Oh, the shame of taking our salvation and putting it into our coat pockets and never sharing with anybody. If we understand that there's a bigger picture taking place here, that God, God chose me and saved me like Ruth in order that he might save Hollister, California. It's very selfless. And listen to me, God does what he does. If you will read 1 Corinthians 1, he has chosen the weak things of the world to do what? To confound the mighty. He's chosen the poor things of this world to what? Confound the rich. It's not just about us, folks. It's not just about us. Number three, all redemption is ultimately and only in Christ. All redemption is ultimately and only in Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one can come to the Father except through me. And he tells us in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. My challenge to you this morning is to take a moment and zoom out. Take a moment and zoom out. As, 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 as the author of this book zooms out at the very end to show us now it's not just about ants. Now it's about, okay, there are people in this story. And we zoom out and we see Israel. We zoom out and we see our neighbor. We zoom out and we see our community. We zoom out and we see our, 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 our co-workers. We zoom out and we see that there's more. Yes, God has saved me individually, but did he save me individually just for me or did he save me for all these people that he's put around me? Did he save me so that I could be a witness to him? And of him. We zoom out a little bit and we see that. And then we zoom out ultimately and we see the Lord. You know what? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of the Lord. Isn't it all about the Lord? In the, in the end, isn't it all about him being glorified and exalted by his people? I think that it is. 
but sometimes it means we have to zoom out to see that. This morning, if you're here with us and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Him, I want to say something to you. The Lord could be speaking to your heart even this moment. And it's personal, just like Ruth. It's not about everybody in this, in this, in this building. The Lord is actually working on your heart as an individual. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to repent of your sins and come to faith in Christ. If He's working on your heart right now, if He's convicting your heart by the power of His Holy Spirit, my, my plea with you is to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ. You say, Pastor John, I've been, in the church my, I've been in the church my whole life. I could never do that. If I did that, it would totally undermine all the things that I've held to. And, and Listen to me. There's nothing more important than you having a true relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about your religion, your church you go to, your family, your upbringing, that you've been in this church your whole life. It's about, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is a personal, individual relationship with Him, that you walk with Him and talk with Him and love Him, and He loves you? Is it, is it that? If you're not saved this morning, listen, Jesus is calling you. Calling you through the preaching of His Word. Calling you through His Spirit. Calling you to, to give up self and to embrace what He has to offer. Listen, what He has to offer is better. It's better. It may include suffering in this life, but listen, it includes eternity with Him, which is good. Amen? If you're saved this morning, you're here, and you've committed your life to Jesus, you're like Ruth in that moment where you say, Lord, wherever you go, wherever you, wherever you live, wherever you eat, wherever you drink, wherever you die, I'm going to be there with you doing the same thing. If you're that person this morning that you committed your life to Jesus, no matter what it costs or what it takes, listen to me. Know this, that there's a bigger picture to your salvation. There's a bigger picture to your salvation. There is a Jewish people, and I don't mean that in a literal sense, but there is a people that God has saved you to touch. Not to touch with your philosophies, but to touch with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a bigger picture. And then ultimately, there is an eternal picture. And when you look down on it, you see that Jesus Christ is the center of it. And He died so that He might be glorified through your salvation. And that's the bigger picture. I think it's helpful for us sometimes to zoom out a little bit and to see life maybe as God sees it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, um, for your, uh, just your, your amazing value, your extraordinary power and strength and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, help us to never view those things in, in a selfish way, but to know that you have called us to yourself. You have saved us for a bigger purpose that we might impact and 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 be infectious to the world when it comes to the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to know it's all about him. May we serve you, Lord, well. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.